The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I'm your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight, we're going to discuss propaganda, uh, what exactly it is, uh, how it's being used against us right now, and uh, we could look at some of the examples of what's being done in the uh, media news cycle that uh, we see uh, all around us on a daily basis. So we're going to explore uh, some of this avenue of thought, because I, I think it's important. So although we've done shows in the past uh, focusing on Edward Bernays and, you know, how he was the father of this idea of propaganda and public relations, uh, we're going to explore a different publication here. And this uh, tonight we'll be reading from a book called Propaganda and Persuasion by Garth S. Jowett and Victoria O'Donnell. And we'll be reading from the fifth edition of this book, which was published in 2012. But the first edition of this book, and, you know, much of what's written in there, was originally published in November of 1986. So this goes back a mighty long time now, folks. And we could understand by reading through this uh, what it is we're looking at going on in the media today. All right. This should spell things out for people in no uncertain terms as to what the media is being used for today, and it most certainly is a propaganda arm of government, okay? Uh, that's what the media is doing. It's putting forward propaganda, which was perfectly legalized uh, in 2012 through the uh, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, where Obama signed in an amendment to uh, some previous law about not being able to use propaganda against American citizens. And, you know, he, he redacted that kind of thing and made it perfectly legal and allowable for us to be propagandized by the news media. Uh, so it, this has always been going on to some degree or another for as long as media has existed. But, um, you know, in 2012, it really started kicking in high gear. And that's actually when this fifth edition was published in 2012. Is that a coincidence? I think it's probably not. And uh, you'll see uh, as we get through the reading here uh, where the connections and stuff lie. Uh, I think you'll be able to pick it out for yourself. I don't think I'll have to uh, point too much of anything out because the, the text in and of itself is pretty plain as to what it is that uh, you know can be accomplished through the use of propaganda and persuasion, as they say, which is you know goes part and parcel with propaganda. So uh, we'll get into the reading here, and we're only going to read a portion of the first chapter because this is a rather lengthy book, and I would recommend you pick it up if you uh, have the means and the opportunity just to get an idea as to what it is that these social controllers in our world uh, do. How, th this, is, this is a volume that explains how a lot of these ideas work. So many of the social controllers would read something like this to get an idea 
as to an effective way to use propaganda, because it takes a look back at different historical accounts and things as well, and explains exactly what's going on. So, <clears throat> let's uh, get right into the reading here, and I'll, I'll pause as I usually do, and uh, you know maybe point out uh, a couple aspects of things and add my comments on it. But uh, let's let's get into the reading, and we'll go right to chapter one. I'm skipping all the introductory stuff and the you know introduction to uh, you know uh, part one and introduction to uh, you know edition number five, and they have all kinds of stuff in the beginning. But we'll go right to chapter one because that's where the meat of the matter really starts. So let's go right into the book here. Chapter one: What is propaganda, and how does it differ from persuasion? Propaganda is a form of communication that attempts to achieve a response that furthers the desired intent of the propagandist. Persuasion is interactive and attempts to satisfy the needs of both persuader and persuadee. A model of propaganda depicts how elements of information, or in, sorry, how elements of informative and persuasive communication may be incorporated into propagandistic communication, thus distinguishing propaganda as a specific class of communication. References are made to past theories of rhetoric that indicate propaganda has had few systematic theoretical treatments prior to the 20th century. Public opinion and behavioral change can be affected by propaganda. And I'm going to pause there, folks. First things first here. It's pointing out the idea of rhetoric. Okay, Rhetoric is a precursor, uh, what we would call uh, one of the old alchemical ideas. This is a precursor of propaganda. Uh, rhetoric is taught in much of the classic education, such as uh, from the trivium and quadrivium, and these basic, uh, you know, what they called in the past the liberal arts. Rhetoric was one of these, and it was something that was taught uh, back in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and even right up into uh, the early 20th century. And after that, it kind of died out, where this classical education has gone away now. So we don't receive these kind of classical educations anymore like we did. Uh, talking about things like rhetoric, logic, and, and reason, and things of that nature. They don't teach that in schools anymore. But rhetoric is kind of a precursor to uh, what would be latched onto by uh, some of these social engineers and used to make propaganda. So that's an important thing people need to understand. The idea of propaganda is much older than the 20th century, but it only got branded as propaganda in the 20th century. Anyway, let's go ahead and read on, because I think that's an important distinction. And then, uh, well, before we continue also, it says persuasion is interactive and attempts to satisfy the needs of both the persuader and the persuadee. So it makes a distinction between propaganda and persuasion. So uh, they use persuasion as a form of propaganda. Okay, so this would be coercion, so to say. Uh, this is one of the ways that they... they they use coercion to uh, shift people's behavior. Is uh, It's a form of persuasion, which in turn is used as a form of propaganda. But anyway, let's, let's continue reading here because I don't want to get too hung up on some of my side notes here because we'll see as we get through the text, there's a lot of important information packed in here. Propaganda has been studied as history, journalism, political science, sociology, and psychology as well as from an interdisciplinary perspective. I'm going to pause there real quick, folks. When they're referring to an interdisciplinary pers perspective, that's called cybernetics. Just keep that in mind. Let's continue reading. 
To study propaganda as history is to examine the practices of propagandists as events and the subsequent events as possible effects of propaganda. To consider propaganda as journalism is to understand how news management, or spin, it says in quotation marks, shapes information, emphasizing positive features and downplaying negative ones, casting institutions in a favorable light. Going to pause there, folks. That's media's job. Just so you understand, that's what news or what they would call journalism, which, you know, really uh, does not really pass for what the, traditionally was considered journalism anymore. That's what the job is, okay? It's, it's a propaganda wing. Journalists anymore, true journalism doesn't exist as it was once intended. It's all propaganda, folks, all of it. And that's what uh, this is. They call it news management, okay? Uh, it's spin. Spin management is another uh, term that they use for it. But anyway, let's get back to the reading. To examine propaganda in the light of political science is to analyze the ideologies of the practitioners and the dissemination and impact of public opinion. To approach propaganda as sociology is to look at social movements and the counter-propaganda that emerges in opposition. To investigate propaganda as psychology is to determine its effects on individuals. Propaganda is also viewed by some scholars as inherent thought and practice in mass culture. A more recent trend that draws on most of these allied fields is the study of propaganda as a purveyor of ideology and to this end is largely a study of how dominant ideological meanings are constructed within the mass media. And it uh, cites the source here being Burnett, 1989, pages 127 to 137. And I'm going to pause there, folks. That's an important idea. Okay, it says a more recent trend is that uh, the study of propaganda as a purveyor of ideology, and that's exactly what they have been using it for. All right? They are trying to be change the behavior and the belief systems of the masses. They're, they're using it as a source of ideology. Uh, and, you know, this could be very much so a concerning thing when you put uh, this type of uh, uh, a leveraging or a power in the hands of a select few people in a power structure. Well... We know what happens with that. They're, they steer the masses to, uh, you know, accept whatever kind of a narrative they're promoting. So that's that's what's being done here. Let's continue reading, though. Ethnographic research is one way to determine whether the people on the receiving end accept or resist dominant ideological meanings. Going to pause there. You notice they use the term dominant. Okay because they want to dominate us. It's about full-spectrum dominance. That's what they're using the media to achieve. They could uh, use the media in a way where they want to steer the public opinion or the public consensus, and that's an important word they throw around a lot too, uh, to accept certain ideas that promote uh, different agendas that they're putting forward. So that that's the case. That's what they're concerned with, the idea of dominance, okay? That's their primary concern here, and that's what they're using the media to establish for themselves. Anyway, let's continue reading. This book approaches the study of propaganda as a type of communication. Persuasion, another category of communication, is also examined. The terms propaganda and persuasion have been used interchangeably in the literature on propaganda, as well as in everyday speech. Propaganda employs persuasive strategies, but it differs from persuasion in purpose. 
A communication approach to the study of propaganda enables us to isolate its communicative variables to determine the relationship of message to context, to examine intentionality, to examine the responses and responsibilities of the audience, and to trace the development of propagandistic communication as a process. We believe there is a need to evaluate propaganda in a contemporary context, free from value-laden definitions. Our objectives are a. to provide a concise examination of propaganda and persuasion, and b. to examine the role of propaganda as an aspect of communication studies, and c. to analyze propaganda as part of social, religious, and political systems throughout history and contemporary times. Propaganda defined. Propaganda, in the most neutral sense, means to disseminate or promote particular ideas. In Latin, it means to propagate or to sow. I'm going to pause there, folks. This is hitting on an important archetype back from, you know, the ancient mystery schools and from the Bible. You, you reap what you sow. So you see, they, they want to sow a particular idea or uh, ideology, per se, into the masses. So they sow that into the masses so that they can reap what it is that they sow. See? It's, it's an old alchemical concept, and they're, they're hitting upon that here in this book. But let's, let's continue reading. In 1622, the Vatican established the Sacra Congratio de Propaganda Fide, meaning the Sacred Congregation for Propagating the Faith of the Roman Catholic Church. Because the propaganda of the Roman Catholic Church had as its intent spreading the faith to the New World, as well as opposing Protestantism, the word propaganda lost its neutrality, and subsequent usage has rendered the term pejorative. To identify a message as propaganda is to suggest something negative and dishonest. I'm going to pause there, folks. Let me read that statement again, okay? because this is basically the connotation that we take away from the word propaganda. To identify a message as propaganda is to suggest something negative and dishonest. Let's continue reading. Words frequently used as cinnamon, sorry, synonyms, not cinnamons. <laughs> Words frequently used as synonyms for propaganda are lies, distortion, deceit, manipulation, mind control, psychological warfare, brainwashing, and palavar. Resistance to the word propaganda is illustrated by the following example. When the legendary film director John Ford assumed active duty as a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy and chief of the field photographic branch of the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, he was asked by his editor Robert Parrish if his film, The Battle of Midway, was going to be a propaganda film. After a long pause, Ford replied, Don't you ever let me hear you use that word again in my presence as long as you're under my command. And that's, he cites the source here as being Doherty, 1993, pages 25 to 26. Ford had filmed the actual Battle of Midway, but he also included flashbacks of an American family at home that implied that an attack on them was an attack on every American. Ford designed the film to appeal to the American people to strengthen their resolve and belief in the war effort, but he resisted the idea of making films for political indoctrination. 
According to our definition, the Battle of Midway was a white propaganda film, for it was neither deceitful nor false. The source was known, but it shaped viewer perceptions and furthered the desired intent of the filmmaker to vilify the enemy and encourage patriotism. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. A lot of important ideas conveyed in this paragraph. First of all, um, you know, over on Crow Triple Seven Radio, um, Jason and Crow have taken apart these filmmakers and as propagandists, and John Ford was a very important one that, that they looked at. And there's many different reasons for that. Uh, if you want to check out those episodes, um, they might be very helpful in trying to uh, define and understand some of these things. But uh, anyway, let's look at some of the other things that are broken down in this paragraph here. Uh, it, it claims that, uh, you know, the, these things were not deceitful or false. Um, well, it, let's say it's disingenuous, the presentation, though. So, I mean, that, that's a matter of perspective, okay? So, from the perspective of the authors here, they don't see any of these things as being uh, false or deceitful that, that uh, John Ford used here. But the point is, they describe this as white propaganda, and we'll get there later, because a little further down they'll talk about what they call black propaganda as well. And this is not uh, touching on race issues or anything like that. Uh, this is using, you know, the implied, this is good propaganda, that's bad propaganda. See how they separate it out? Uh, they, they say it's, it's, a, it's a useful tool, to you could use it to do good, and that's what they're implying John Ford did here with it but the, the thing is good for who or whom that that's the question who's the beneficiary of this and, and how would you classify something like that if it's being disingenuous how do you classify it as oh it's good and and once again this falls back on the idea of uh, these these different types of lies uh, that are told okay and this ties back to an occultic principle that we talked about uh, when I was doing the uh, the show on the, the concept of the blackjack, where uh, I was reading from the works of Michael Hoffman, his Twilight Language book, where he talks about the way that the occult use these different lies, and they, 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 they view one form of lying as being good, and another one as being um, having malicious intent. Okay, And th this is the same thing they're breaking apart in this propaganda idea piece. Once again, like I tell people all the time, as uncomfortable as it may be for some folks, this always ties back to the occult and occultism, regardless of whether you believe it or not. That's a fact, Jack. It always ties back to that stuff. So regardless of whether you want to deny it or not, there's always these occult ideas put, being put in practice, especially by the social engineers who have learned how to use some of these older alchemical sciences in a negative way to steer the uh, opinions and the uh, behaviors of the masses. Uh, let's, let's get back to the reading, though. Terms implying propaganda that have gained popularity today are spin and news management, referring to a coordinated strategy to minimize negative information and present in a favorable light a story that could be damaging to self-interest. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. What's going on in the media today? Vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. COVID, COVID, COVID. I don't think I need to explain anything further to you people about this. I, I know a lot of times I'm preaching to the choir, but I just wanted to point this out and show how many of these types of uh, 
of books and white papers and policy papers and think tank papers and and uh, social engineering uh, manuals that there are out there that talk about this stuff and how to engineer different uh, things with this stuff. And this one speaks definitively to media about propaganda. This is how it's done. It shows historical accounts of how, how this is done. These are the terms that are used and... Uh, you know, there's different types of propaganda in this thing. And, and we'll get there. Let's let's continue reading because, like I said, this, this book is packed full of a lot of really useful information for anybody who's interested in learning more about how social engineering works. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me, but let's get back to the reading. Spin is often used with reference to the manipulation of political information. Therefore, press secretaries and public relations officers are referred to as spin doctors when they attempt to launder the news. And then, once again, he cites sources. I'm just going to stop telling you the sources. If you want to really look up the, the sources that are, are cited in this book, you could pick up the book and read it and, and look into the sources. So I, I'm not going to waste any more time citing them. Uh, but it is a well-researched book. Let's put it that way. Let's continue reading, though. Besides being associated with unethical, harmful, and unfair tactics, propaganda is also commonly defined as organized persuasion. Persuasion differs from propaganda, as we will see later in this chapter, but the term is often used as a catch-all for suspicious rhetoric. Sproul references propaganda as organized mass persuasion with covert intent and poor or non-existent reasoning. Propaganda represents the work of large organizations or groups to win over the public for special interests through a massive orchestration of attractive conclusions packaged to conceal both their persuasive purpose and lack of sound supporting reasons. And I'm going to pause there, folks. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? I think all you got to do is turn on your television. And you'll see that playing out in front of your face. I'll read that again because this is important. Let me read that sentence again. Propaganda represents the work of large organizations or groups to win over the public for special interests through a massive orchestration of attractive conclusions packaged to conceal both their persuasive purpose and lack of sound supporting reasons. Do you catch that? Turn on your TV, folks. That's what you see happening in front of your eyes. Let's continue reading, though. When the use of propaganda emphasizes purpose, the term is associated with control and is regarded as a deliberate attempt to alter or maintain a balance of power that is advantageous to the propagandist. Deliberate attempt is usually linked with a clear institutional ideology and objective. The purpose of propaganda is to convey an ideology to an audience with a related objective. Whether it is a government agency attempting to instill a massive wave of patriotism in a national audience to support a war effort, a terrorist network enlisting followers in a jihad, a military leader trying to frighten the enemy by exaggerating the strength of its army, a corporation pursuing a credible image to maintain its legitimacy among its clientele, or a company seeking to malign a rival to deter competition for its product, a careful and predetermined plan of prefabricated symbol manipulation is used to communicate an objective to an audience. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Symbol manipulation. 
like I said earlier, always ties back to the occult, okay? Whether you want to admit that or not, it always does. Always. Mark my words, always. It always has something to do with the occult, these things that they do. Let's continue reading. That objective endeavors to reinforce or modify the attitudes, the behavior, or both of an audience. Many scholars have grappled with a definition of the word propaganda. Jacques Ellul focused on propaganda as a technique itself, notably psychological manipulation, that in technological societies has certain identical results, whether it is used by communists or Nazis or Western democratic organizations. He regarded propaganda as sociological phenomena, not as something made or produced by people of intentions. Ilul contended that nearly all biased messages in society were propagandistic even when the biases were unconscious. He also emphasized the potency and pervasiveness of propaganda. Because propaganda is instantaneous, he contended it destroys one's sense of history and disallows critical reflection. Yet Ilul believed that people need propaganda because we live in a mass society. Propaganda, he said, enables us to participate in important events, such as elections, celebrations, and memorials. Elul said that truth does not separate propaganda from moral forms, because propaganda uses truth, half-truth, and limited truth. Leonard W. Dube, who defined propaganda in 1948 as the attempt to affect the personalities and to control the behavior of individuals towards ends considered unscientific or of doubtful value in a society at a particular time, said in a 1989 essay that a clear-cut definition of propaganda is neither possible nor desirable. Dube rejected a contemporary definition of propaganda because of the complexity of the issues related to behavior in society and differences in times and cultures. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And what he's actually hitting on is um, a, a much older philosophical or occult principle, okay? When he's saying there, it's uh, they don't want a clear-cut definition of propaganda, is essentially what he's saying. This leaves a lot of wiggle room for them to, to use it as a tool in various ways. Okay, If they don't exactly define what it is, then people can't really understand what it is. And make no doubt about this. People at the topmost levels of these uh, secret societies and in the power structure understand exactly what it is and how to use it. But see, putting the definition out there for the public would make them more resistant to understanding how it works. So that's why they want to keep it uh, as something kind of, uh, how should we say, ambiguous. They don't want an exact definition of how it works out there. Because then they wouldn't have a leg up anymore. And, uh, you know, when you're socially engineering a society, you want to make sure you maintain that leg up on them by understanding something that they don't. So they, they purposely will keep this information hidden from the, the public at large. That's why they say, why he says here, that it's, you know, the idea of defining propaganda is neither possible nor desirable. Understand? This guy apparently probably had some connections in the upper echelons of society. 
Anyway, let's continue reading. It says here, Dube rejected a contemporary definition of propaganda because of the complexity of the issues related to behavior in society and differences in times and cultures. And I, you know, I'm going to pause there again. I don't think that was the case. I think he's just protecting his interests. <laughs> but let, let's continue reading. Both Alul and Dube have contributed seminal ideas to the study of propaganda, but we find Alul's magnitude and Dube's resistance to definitions troublesome because we believe that to analyze propaganda, one needs to be able to identify it. A definition sets forth propaganda's characteristics and aids our recognition of it. Psychologists Anthony Pratkanis and Elliot Aronson in 2001 wrote a book about propaganda for the purpose of informing Americans about propaganda devices and psychological dynamics so that people will know how to counteract their effectiveness. They regarded propaganda as the abuse of persuasion and recognized that propaganda is more than clever deception. In a series of case studies, they illustrated propaganda tactics such as withholding vital information invoking heuristic devices, using meaningless association, and other strategies of questionable ethics. They defined propaganda as mass suggestion or influence through the manipulation of symbols and the psychology of the individual, thus emphasizing verbal and nonverbal communication and audience appeals. Other scholars have emphasized the communicative qualities of propaganda. Leo Bogart, in his study of the U.S. Information Agency, focused on the propagandist as a sender of messages. Propaganda is an art requiring special talent. It is not mechanical, scientific work. Influencing attitudes requires experience, area knowledge, and instinctive judgment of what is the best argument for the audience. No manual can give or sorry, no manual can guide the propagandist. He must have a good mind, genius sensitivity, and knowledge of how that audience thinks and reacts. This quotation is from the original six-volume classified study of the USIA done in 1954 that Bogart's work condenses. The study was released in abridged form in 1976, and the introduction to it was revised in 1995. Scholars have studied propaganda in specific institutions. Alex Carey regarded propaganda in the corporate world as communications where the form and content is selected with the single-minded purpose of bringing some target audience to adopt attitudes and beliefs chosen in advance by the sponsors of the communications. Noam Chomsky, in his introduction to Carey's collection of essays, said that Carey believed that the 20th century has been characterized by three developments of great political importance, the growth of democracy, the growth of corporate power, and the growth of corporate propaganda as a means of protecting corporate power against democracy. Carey said that commercial advertising and public relations are the forms of propaganda activity common to a democracy. It is arguable that the success of business propaganda is in persuading us for so long that we are free from propaganda is one of the most significant propaganda achievements of the 20th century. Gonna pause there. Do you catch the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the irony in that statement, folks? It, it's true. It's true. Uh, we're being propagandized all the time, and we think we live in a free country, don't we? Let's continue reading, though, because like I said, there's a whole lot of important information in here. Sean J. Perry Giles, 
who studied the propaganda production of the Truman and Eisenhower Cold War operations, defined propaganda as conceived of a, as strategically devised messages that are disseminated to masses of people by an institution for the purpose of generating action benefiting its source. She indicated that Truman and Eisenhower were the first two presidents to introduce and mobilize propaganda as an official peacetime institution. In a war of words, propaganda acted as an integral component of the government's foreign policy operation. To understand propaganda's influence is to grasp the means by which America's Cold War messages were produced and the overall impact that such strategizing had on the ideological constructions of the Cold War. Bertrand Taith and Tim Thornton see propaganda as part of a historical tradition of pleading and convincing, and therefore as a form of political language. However, propaganda is always articulated around a system of truths and expresses a logic of exclusive representation. It is the purpose of propaganda to convince, to win over, and to convert. It has therefore to be convincing, viable, and truthful within its own remit. The shaping of the term propaganda is also an indication of the way the political nation judges the manner in which political messages are communicated. Propaganda promotes the ways of the community as well as defining them. Going to pause there. See that? As well as defining them. That's the whole point and purpose of propaganda and therefore the whole point and purpose of media. Okay? They want to define the narrative. They want to define what's going on in the world. They want to define what it is that you believe. See? It's, it's trying to reach into your mind and formulate your opinions for you to uh, line up with what it is that these propagandists or social engineers want in society. Let's, let's continue the reading on. Recognizing how difficult it is to define propaganda, O'Shaughnessy devoted several pages to the, the term's complexity. He recognized that propaganda is a co-production in which we are willing participants it articulates the things that are half-whispered internally. Further, he wrote, propaganda generally involves the unambiguous transmission of message. It is a complex conveyor of simple solutions. Terence H. Qualter emphasized the necessity of audience adaptation. Propaganda, to be effective, must be seen, remembered, understood, and acted upon, adapted to particular needs of the situation and the audience to which it is aimed. Influencing attitudes, anticipating audience reaction, adapting to the situation and audience, and being seen, remembered, understood, and acted on are important elements of the communicative process. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. That, my friends, is why social media is such an important thing to these people. Because computer algorithms help to figure out who their audience is, what their core belief systems are, and how to effectively target them with different propaganda and different strategies to steer their behaviors. See, this is where it gets, you know, very tech heavy. And uh, that Terence H. Qualter that we were just quoting from, he wrote that in 1962. Uh, so that being the case, things have only gotten much more technologically savvy since then. And they have the use now of the, these artificial intelligence algorithms that can help them to figure out how exactly to target sp specific types of audiences to adhere to what it is that they're pushing or promoting. So 
Uh, that's why the importance of social media right now as well, because this is being used as a propaganda tool, let's face it. Anyway, let's get back to the reading, though. Pratt, Canis, and Turner defined the function of propaganda as attempts to move a recipient to a predetermined point of view by using simple images and slogans that truncate thought by playing on prejudices and emotions. I'm going to pause there. Emotions, folks. What did we say in you know many times in the past? They like to target emotional responses from people because if they if people have a critical response or a critical thinking type response uh they're not really pushing their point across that they want so they they target people's uh, more what you would call reptilian type brain the emotional side the the basic needs they they hit on the lowest common denominator with things so that uh, people will just instinctively react see it's a mechanism we have it's a, a self-defense mechanism that's inherent in all of us and all through nature through all animals and that would be you, you're hit with an emotional affrontation and you react without thinking about it and that's the uh the, the kind of idea that they leverage off of with this stuff anyway let's, let's continue reading though they separated propaganda from persuasion according to the type of deliberation used to design messages Persuasion, they said, is based on debate, discussion, and careful consideration of options to discover better solutions for complex problems. Whereas, propaganda results in the manipulation of the mob by the elite. Gonna pause there, folks. Did you hear that? <laughs> Listen to that sentence again. I think that says it all. All the intention and everything's right there. Let me read that again. Quote, Propaganda results in the manipulation of the mob by the elite. End quote. Let's continue reading. These definitions vary from the general to the specific, sometimes including value judgments, sometimes folding propaganda into persuasion, but nearly always recognizing propaganda as a form of communication. Jowett and O'Donnell's definition of propaganda. I'm going to pause there. Those are the two authors of this book, folks. And up until this point, they've been quoting from other of these past social engineers and propagandists and uh, putting together their, their reasons and their arguments for or against propaganda and how it lines up, uh, you know, with persuasion and defining the differences between the both. But let's, let's hear what the author's own uh, definition of propaganda is here. Let's read. We seek to understand and analyze propaganda by identifying its characteristics and to place it within communication studies to examine the qualities of context, sender, intent, message, channel, audience, and response. Furthermore, we want to clarify as much as possible the distinction between propaganda and persuasion by examining propaganda as a subcategory of persuasion as well as information. Our definition of propaganda focuses on the communication process, most specifically on the purpose of the process. Propaganda is the deliberate, systematic attempt to shape perceptions, manipulate cognitions, and direct behavior to achieve a response that furthers the desired intent of the propagandist. Let's examine the words of definition to see what is precisely meant. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Let me read their definition again. This is what their definition is of propaganda. 
And I quote, Propaganda is the deliberate, systematic attempt to shape perceptions, manipulate cognitions, and direct behavior to achieve a response that furthers the desired intent of the propagandist. End quote. All right. So here, there are also, they, with that definition, which I think is actually pretty self-explanatory, they decided to define some of the terms that they put in that definition underneath here. And we'll read these just so you could see uh, what it is they're talking about, okay? So first, they have the word deliberate. Deliberate is a strong word meaning willful, intentional, and premeditated. And first and foremost, I'm going to pause there, folks. First and foremost, you'll notice that they define deliberate, and they say it's a strong word, and that it means the first thing out of their mouth that they say here is willful. Will. It's an occult principle, once again. Uh, like I said, all this stuff always ties back to the occult, whether you want to admit it or not. It's there. All right. There's a reason that they use the word willful first in defining deliberate here. But let's, let's start that again, and we'll read that again, and then we'll just continue on with the reading. Deliberate is a strong word, meaning willful, intentional, and premeditated. It implies a sense of careful considerations of all possibilities. We use it because propaganda is carefully thought out ahead of time to select what will be the most effective strategy to promote an ideology and maintain an advantageous position. The next term they, they do here is systematic. Systematic complements deliberate because it means precise and methodical, carrying out something with organized regularity. Governments and corporations establish departments or agencies specifically to create systematic propaganda. I'm going to read that again, folks. Governments and corporations establish departments or agencies specifically to create systematic propaganda. Although the general public is more aware of propaganda agencies during wartime, such agencies exist all the time, for they are essential. For example, you will see in the case study, Big Pharma, Marketing Disease and Drugs, in Chapter 7, pharmaceutical companies wage massive advertising campaigns and engage in questionable practices. Advertising campaigns, as discussed in Chapter 3, are forms of systematic propaganda. Did you catch that, folks? Pharmaceutical companies wage massive advertising campaigns and engage in questionable practices. What do we see on the TV today, folks? Turn on your television. That's all you see all over the TV is this going on. Let's continue reading, though. Political advertising campaigns, often very negative, are systematic before elections. They are expensive to produce for airtime. Consequently, creative use of digital technologies have been used. In 2010, Sean Clegg, campaign manager of Level the Playing Field 2010, developed inexpensive ads for the web with a nasty caricature of Meg Whitman, the leading Republican candidate for governor of California. Standing in front of a jet airplane, her lips peeled back from thick gums, saying, California, let me take you for a ride. Carly Fiorina, a Republican running for the California State Senate, released a web video portraying her opponent as a demon sheep. Her campaign followed up with another video depicting United States Senator Barbara Boxer, the Democratic incumbent, as a crazed blimp floating across the country. Shown on YouTube and Facebook, this new genre of unconventional, low-cost ads have been big web hits. Gonna pause right there, folks. 
like I said, this here is hitting on the importance of social media, which was just really becoming a thing around the writing of the fifth edition of this book when they were adding this in. So, you, you could see how it's taken off in a big way, and it's being used in many different ways. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's continue reading, though. Attempt. They define the term attempt here. The goal of propaganda is to attempt, or to try, to create a certain state in a certain audience. Thus, propaganda is an attempt at directive communication with an objective that has been established a priori. The desired state may be perceptual, cognitive, behavioral, or all three. Each one of these is described with examples as followed. First, shaping perceptions. Shaping perceptions is usually attempted through language and images, which is why slogans, posters, symbols, and even architectural structures are developed during wartime. How we perceive is based on complex psychological, philosophical, and practical habitual thought patterns that we carry over from past experiences. Perception is the process of extracting information from the world outside us, as well as from within ourselves. Each individual has a perceptual field that is unique to that person, and formed by the influences of values, roles, group norms, and self-image. Each of these factors colors the ways a person perceives. George Johnson, in his book, in the Palace of Memory, offered a colorful description of perception and recognition according to the activity of neural networks in the brain. And we're going to quote here from that book now. Looking out the window at the ocean, we might notice a bright light in the night sky hovering on the horizon. Deep inside the brain, one neural network responds to this vector, dismissing it as just another star. But its intense brightness causes another network to guess that it is Venus. Then the light starts getting bigger, brighter, creating a different vector, a different set of firing patterns. Another network associates this configuration with approaching headlights on a freeway. Then two more lights appear, green and red. Networks that interpret these colors feed into other networks. The pattern for stoplight weekly responds. All over the brain, networks are talking to networks, entertaining competing hypotheses. Then comes the roar, and suddenly we know what it is. The noise vector, the growing white light vector, and the red and green vector all converge on the network, or network of networks, that says airplane. Johnson went on to say how a perception was ultimately categorized would depend on the architecture of the system, that which a person was born with, and that which was developed through experience. Some people's brains would tell them they had seen a UFO or an angel instead of a plane. Because members of a culture share similar values and norms, as well as the same laws and general practices, it is quite possible to have group perceptions, or at least very similar perceptions, within a cultural group. And I'm going to pause there, folks. That's an important idea to keep in mind. See, this is why uh, they take things like demographics into consideration when they're targeting people with different types of uh, propaganda. See, uh, because of these social norms, all right? It, it's groupthink. See, the, 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 the minds of the masses, it's, it's a different thing. Mass psychology is different from individual psychology, and they're well aware of that. And they know how to manipulate both aspects of that. So uh, that's how we could say something like, like this. A person is smart. People 
are dumb. Do you, do you understand the distinction? Uh, because when you put people in a massive group, groupthink takes over a lot of times. And uh, this is, the you know, mass psychology. So a person on an individual level, they might be smart and see through propaganda, but when it's directed at the masses and the masses all start to act in a similar way, this creates this, this mob mentality type thing. And, and this is, you know, what mass psychology is. So you could, you could accurately say a person is smart, but people are dumb. And, and you would be 100% correct in that assessment. And this is, this is, you know, how the social engineers view it. Okay. But let's, let's continue on here. <clears throat> Our language is based on a vast web of associations that enables us to interpret, judge, and conceptualize our perceptions. Propagandists understand that our constructed meanings are related to both our past understanding of language and images and the culture and context in which they appear. Perception is dependent on our attitudes towards issues and our feelings about them. For example, legislation designed to increase timber thinning in national forests was labeled a healthy forests initiative. Gonna pause there, and you could see um, how how they manipulate the words and stuff like that and and these meanings to represent the opposite of what's true. Do do you see that? Because they're talking about uh, thinning national forests, but at the same token, they they label it as a healthy forest initiative. So they're cutting down trees, but they're saying, you know, this this is for healthy forests. So so you could see how that works. Anyway, let's let's continue reading here. Environmental groups protested the legislation on the grounds that it was unhealthy to cut down healthy trees and harm wildlife. Michael Garrity, executive director of the Alliance for the Wild Rockies, revealed that the U.S. Forest Service will make about $312,000 by cutting 4.5 million board feet of timber in southern Montana's Gallatin National Forest alone. Gallatin National Forest thinning planning plan moves ahead, 2005. What is healthy depends on our associations. An Associated Press article titled Doublespeak, a lingo in nation's capital is important as issues, offered several examples of language that evades responsibility and accountability. A government report on hunger in America referred to food insecurity rather than hunger. Descriptions of suicide by war captives labeled them as self-injurious behavior incidents and interrogations as debriefings. When the sky became dark and dirty with smog during the first few days of the Beijing Olympics in August 2008, in a Los Angeles Times article, it was officially called haze. Gonna pause there. So do you see how they, how disingenuous a lot of this is, how they use different terms and they, they, they try to portray something that's negative in a positive light? That's the whole purpose of propaganda, folks. It's to make it acceptable by calling it the opposite of what it really is in many cases. So let's continue reading here. Operation Desert Shield was changed to Operation Desert Storm when U.S. forces invaded Iraq in January 1991. Changing Shield to Storm enabled people to alter their perception of the U.S. military operation from protective armies to raging forces. The second invasion of Iraq in March 2003 failed to achieve a successful slogan. Shock and awe was tried... But it only lasted for one week. Frank Rich, editorialist for the New York Times, said that the television images from the Arab network 
Al Jazeera that depicted American soldiers who had been killed or taken prisoner by Iraqi forces contradicted the slogan. For the first time, we could smell blood, American blood, and while that was shocking, it was far from awesome. President George W. Bush began to use the phrase, the War on Terror, shortly after the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, and continuing through his re-election campaign in 2004. Gillis Capel in The War for Muslim Minds, Islam in the West, said, The phrase was engineered to heighten fear while simultaneously tapping the righteous indignation of citizens in civilized nations against barbaric murderers who would perpetrate despicable atrocities on innocent victims. President Bush, however, made a serious gaffe when, in an impromptu remarks, he described America's goal to annihilate al-Qaeda's Taliban hosts in Afghanistan as a crusade. In the Muslim world, crusade represented medieval European Christianity's crusades against Islam. There was an uproar over the religious connotations of the word, which suggested that Bush wanted to conquer Islam. Bush retracted the term immediately and promptly visited a mosque in Washington, D.C. in an attempt to nullify the impression that American mobilization against al-Qaeda was aimed at Muslims or at Islam in general. Osama bin Laden, however, was quick to pick up the term and use it in his al-Qaeda propaganda messages denouncing American crusaders. And I'm going to pause there, folks. I would argue, I don't think that, uh, you know, that was something that uh, George Bush said accidentally. I think, uh, you know, it was put in his speech for a reason, and this is exactly why. So that they could keep this narrative alive and, uh, you know, this political football going back and forth, and they could use it as fuel on the fire, so to say, here. See, in retrospect, looking back on this, I I'm almost positive that was not an accidental slip of the tongue from George Bush. Uh, these kind of things don't wind up in political speeches by accident. Understand? Uh, so, you know, I, I'm I'm very surprised the authors gave this a pass, but that also shows their intent, doesn't it? Uh, but But let's continue reading here. Perceptions are also shaped by visual symbols. During the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, symbolic yellow ribbons have been put on trees, fences, buildings, automobiles, and jewelry to indicate support of the U.S. military. The ritual of tying yellow ribbons can be traced back to the American Civil War, when women wore yellow ribbons for their loved ones who were away at war. The 1949 John Wayne film, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, reflects the theme of remembering someone who is away. For television messages about progress in the Second Iraqi War, a designer who had worked for Hollywood film and television studios built a $250,000 set for General Tommy Frank's briefings in Qatar. To signify identification and status as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, President Bush wore combat clothing when he visited troops on the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln on Thanksgiving Day 2003. And President Obama wore a bomber jacket when he spoke to the troops at Bagram Air Base in Kabul on March 28, 2010. As we have seen, digital technology enables images to be sent to television, newspapers, and the Internet instantly. Photographs are easily doctored, making it difficult to tell what is real and what is not. A video of a man and his 12-year-old son, Mohammed al-Dura, cowered behind a concrete structure in the Gaza Strip while Israeli soldiers and Palestinian fighters engaged in gun battle was widely circulated in September 2000. 
The boy appeared to be killed and the father wounded in the crossfire. A clip of the boy's death was widely circulated on television worldwide, and stills appeared on the front pages of newspapers. This visual became a symbol of continuing atrocities from, or sorry, for the Palestinian Intifada, causing riots to break out in the West Bank and violent outbreaks against Jews, not only in Israel, but also elsewhere around the world. According to an article in Reader's Digest, Seeing Isn't Believing, 2004, there were many indications that the video was staged. Gonna pause there, folks. The video was staged. What do you think? Hmm? They do this stuff all the time. See, if it's on the TV, chances are it's not true. Okay, let's put it that way. Just the way that mass media has been, it's, I'll tell you, it's a manipulation, all of it. So this is just pointing out the obvious there, and we've seen so many examples of this, haven't we? Let's continue reading. As the dangerous eating disorder anorexia nervosa reaches epidemic proportions among young girls and women, hundreds of pro-anorexia websites keep appearing on the internet. These websites, which appear to be put up by young anorexic females and friends, offer advice on dieting tips for drastic weight loss, strategies to trick parents into believing that their daughters are eating, and praise on behalf of extreme thinness. Visual propaganda on these pro-Anna, anorexia is personified as my friend Anna, websites features photographs of famous models and movie stars that have been altered to make them appear even thinner than they actually are. Photographs of extremely obese women are also shown to to trigger extreme fasting. (coughs) Excuse me. There's nothing new about propagandists exploiting the media to get their visual messages across. For historical propagandists did so as well to shape perceptions. In 1914, Mary Richardson went into the National Gallery in London and slashed a painting. The Rockaby Venus, a 1650 masterpiece by Diego Valesquez, at her trial she said her motive had been to draw attention to the treatment of the suffragette leader Emily Pankhurst, who was on a hunger strike in prison. Toby Clark, 1997, said, The attack on the painting would have been partly understood as an extension of the suffragette's tactic of smashing department store windows, which assaulted feminized spaces of consumerism like a parodic inversion of shopping. By moving the battle to the nation's foremost art museum, Richardson brought the values of the state's guardians of culture into the line of fire, and by choosing a famous picture of a nude woman, she targeted the point of intersection between institutional power and the representation of femininity. Richardson had not destroyed the picture, but altered it, making a new image, the slashed Venus, which was widely reproduced in photographs in the national press, as Richardson had surely anticipated. Though the newspaper's response was hostile, demonizing Slasher Mary as a monstrous hysteric, Richardson had succeeded in using the mass media to disseminate her picture of a wounded heroine, in effect a metaphorical portrait of the martyred Pankhurst and the suffering of women in general. As perceptions are shaped, cognitions may be manipulated. One way that beliefs are formed is through the person's trust in his or her own senses. Certainly, an attitude is a cognitive or effective reaction to an idea or object based on one's perceptions. Of course, once a belief or an attitude is formed, a person's perceptions are influenced by it. 
This does not happen in a vacuum. The formation of cognitions and attitudes is a complex process related to cultural and personal values and emotions. The Voice of America during World War II had a stated directive to manipulate the cognitions of both the enemy and America's allies. It was to spread the contagion of fear among our enemies, but also to spread the contagion of hope, confidence, and determination among our friends. There were many heroes among the troops fighting in the Second Iraq War, but the story of Private Jessica Lynch received non-stop coverage in the media. One story in the Washington Post, whose headline claimed she was fighting to the death, led us to believe that the 19-year-old supply clerk had fought fiercely against her Iraqi attackers, but was riddled with bullet and knife wounds. As a prisoner of war, the papers said she was abused and finally rescued in a daring night raid. A revised story with the headline, A Broken Body, A Broken Story, Pieced Together, disclosed that Lynch had not been shot or stabbed, but that a Humvee accident shattered her bones. Her rifle jammed, thus she never fired, and her captors were gone before she was rescued. As Ellen Goodman wrote in her column entitled, Jessica Lynch, A Human, Not a Symbolic Hero. By making Jessica into a cartoon hero, we may have missed the bravery of the young soldier now recovering in Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Jessica Lynch has now become a redefining story of the war, with skeptics asking whether the Pentagon spun the media or the media hyped the story. Whether it was the Pentagon or media hype, the public's cognitions were manipulated. And I'm going to pause there, folks. That's how they do so much of this, okay? It's to manipulate your mind understand manipulate your mind so all of these stories you see coming out it's it's propaganda this is what it is they embellish things that didn't really happen in many cases okay they make it up and turn it into an emotional story to so that they could create an attachment in your mind to this thing see because when you attach emotion to something it becomes ingrained as a memory so many people will remember this Jessica Lynch story as she was extremely heroic and, you know, was, you know, injured in a firefight and all of this stuff that wasn't true. It never happened that way. Okay? So uh, it, it's it's disingenuous. Let's put it that way. Propaganda, for the most part, is disingenuous. All right? Let's continue on here. I'm going to skip down a little bit, I think, because we're, we're starting to get the idea, I suppose. Uh, often the direction of a specific behavior is the intent of a propaganda effort. During war, one desired behavior is defection of enemy troops. In the 1991 Gulf War, the U.S. 4th Psychological Operations Group dropped 29 million leaflets on Iraqi forces to attract defectors. A U.S. radio program, Vo Voice of the Gulf, featured testimonials from happy Iraqi prisoners of war, along with prayers from the Koran and the location of the bomb targets for the next day. 75% of Iraqi defectors said they were influenced by the leaflets and the radio broadcasts. The same tactic was used in the 2003 Iraq War when leaflets that said, Do not risk your life and the lives of your comrades. Leave now and go home. Watch your children learn, grow, and prosper were dropped on Iraqi military forces. At the beginning of the 2001 War on the Taliban, U.S. military radio broadcasts in, into Afghanistan by Air Force EC-130E Commando solo aircraft warned the Taliban in two of the local Afghan languages that they would be destroyed not only by U.S. bombs and missiles, but also by American helicopters and ground troops. 
and this is what they broadcast. Our helicopters will rain fire down upon your camps before you detect them on radar. Our bombs are so accurate we can drop them through your windows. Our infantry is trained for any climate and terrain on Earth. United States soldiers fire with superior marksmanship and are armed with superior weapons. This tactic to frighten the enemy was successful in directing a specific behavior for Rear Admiral John Stufflebeam, Deputy Director of Operations for the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, I have not seen any reports that they are returning fire on our aircraft. Beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors are desirable end states for propagandist purposes and determine the formation of a propaganda message campaign or both. Because so many factors determine the formation of beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors, the propagandist has to gather a great deal of information about the intended audience. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Big data is king, and this is exactly why. The more data they have on you, the better they can propagandize you towards whatever it is that they're looking to propagandize you towards. Understand? It says here, achieve a response. To continue with the definition, propaganda seeks to achieve a response, a specific reaction or action from an audience that furthers the desired intent of the propagandist. These last words are the key to the definition of propaganda for the one who benefits from the audience's response, if the response is the desired one, is the propagandist and not necessarily the members of the audience. I'm going to pause there, folks. That statement says everything we need to know, doesn't it? Let's continue, though. People in the audience may think the propagandist has their interest at heart, but in fact, the propagandist's motives are selfish ones. Selfish motives are not necessarily negative, and judgment depends on which ideology one supports. For example, people who listened to the Voice of America broadcasts behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War found satisfaction for their hunger for information, and thus it appeared that VOA had altruistic motives. The information they received from VOA however, was ideologically injected to shape positive perceptions about the United States and its allies and to manipulate attitudes toward democracy, capitalism, and freedom. Most Americans would not regard these practices as negative, but the communist government officials did. Later in the chapter in the section on sub-propaganda, we give examples of seemingly altruistic communication that was deliberately designed to facilitate acceptance of an ideology. But I'm going to pause there, folks. It's still disingenuous at its core, okay? Whether the, the people that are propagandizing you think they're doing the right thing or not is immaterial. It's not right. It's the willful manipulation of somebody else's free will. That's what's going on. Um, and, you know, I, I do agree with the authors here. Persuasion something a little bit different. Like, you, you could use persuasion without propagandizing somebody. You could, you know, present your point of view without uh, using disingenuous methods the way they do for propaganda and trying to, uh, you know, manipulate people's minds, so to say. Anyway, let's uh, skip down a little bit here. We get the idea. Um, okay, here, this, this is kind of an important point here. Okay. The vast search engine Google 
had been a presence in China, abiding by government censorship policies until March 22, 2010, thus revealing to the world that China had demanded that Google censor web content such as the pro-democracy movement, persecution, the 1989 crackdown on students in Tiananmen Square, the banned spiritual sect Falun Gong, and Tibetan independence. In negotiations, Google executives asked to operate as an uncensored search engine in China, and they were rejected. Google moved its operations to Hong Kong, where its mainland users were blocked by government when searches in involved forbidden subjects. Hong Kong users could still see uncensored results. A shocking form of Chinese suppression of information occurred when Lu Zibao, a Chinese advocate for democracy, was awarded the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize. Nothing about it appeared in Chinese-language state media or on the country's internet portals. CNN broadcasts that reach only luxury compounds and hotels in China were blacked out. Mobile phone users could not transmit text messages containing his name. The Chinese government cut off the telephone and internet communication of Lu's wife while warning her not to contact friends or media. After she visited her husband in prison, she was placed under house arrest. It was inevitable that the news about the award would become public, so the Chinese government's official statement called it blasphemy. Gonna pause there, folks. Do you see <laughs> how dangerous this can be? Especially when it's a very a select few people at the very top that are controlling what's allowable and what's not and what information gets out. When you consider that there's only six corporations, and, and it's probably less than that now, but six corporations control over 95% of all media in the world. So, you know, there's a very small number of people that control what gets out and what doesn't. And that's a perfect example of that. Let's, uh, let's see. What, what else do we have here? Propaganda itself, as a form of communication, is influenced by the technological devices for sending messages that are available in a given time. As technology advances, propagandists have more sophisticated tools at their service. ABC Nightline reported in December 1991 the first recorded use of a fax machine for propaganda purposes. Leaflets describing how to prepare for a chemical warfare assault, presumably sent by the Hussein propagandists, came through thousands of Kuwaiti fax machines. The internet and satellites are major pro propaganda outlets for Al-Qaeda, which reaches its followers in 68 countries. New technologies have also been a boon to protesters, resulting in cyber duels between autocratic governments and dissidents. According to Navtej Dillon, an analyst with the Brookings Institute, the internet has certainly broken 30 years of state control over what is seen and is unseen, what is visible versus invisible. Young people have increasingly used the internet to mobilize politically. Text messaging was used to rally supporters in a popular political uprising in Ukraine in 2004. Protesters in Moldova used text messaging Facebook and Twitter to rally supporters to protest against communist leadership in 2009. Text messages threatened activists in Belarus in 2006. When Myanmar sought to silence demonstrators in 2007, it switched off the country's internet for six weeks. China's government has tried hard over the years to obliterate the memory of the huge student-led protest in Tiananmen Square that captivated the world on June 4, 1989. China blocked sites like YouTube to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Chen Guang 
who was 17 in 1989, had been a soldier who was told to fire on the students. Twenty years later, he made a painting of the event. When Chinese galleries refused to exhibit his painting, he posted it on the internet, but it was removed within hours. In Iran, the day after the election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was announced on June 12, 2009, supporters of candidate Mir Hossein Mousavi contested the election, questioning its legitimacy. Going to pause there. What does that sound like, folks? Anyway, let's, let's continue reading here. You see how it's the same things over and over and over again. In the streets of Tehran, thousands of people marched into a blockade of Basij militiamen armed with tear gas, water cannons, and clubs. Heavy media censorship made it impossible to see what happened. BBC and Newsweek journalists were ousted, and remaining foreign journalists were warned not to go to the demonstrations. Iran TV broadcast pro-Ahmadinejad demonstrations. Some protesters were arrested, but others used cell phone cameras to provide images of brutal police tactics on social networking sites, including Twitter. Well, text messages described what was happening. The government shut down several websites, including Twitter and Facebook and cell phone services. A cell phone video of the shooting of Nida Aga Sultan, a bystander, was emailed to the Voice of America and British newspapers. It then spread to Facebook and CNN. According to several current and former U.S. and European security officials, the Iranian government cannot block out the opposition even though it has tried various stratagems to control cyberspace and cell phone traffic. For example, a government operation set up Twitter accounts to spread disinformation and find... Dissidents, but a blog named Network Culture has posted detailed guidance on how to fool it. Most, more recently, the Iranian government issued a ban on any news related to the leaders of the protest movement against President Ahmadinejad. The editors of all domestic newspapers and news agencies in Iran have been ordered to refrain from publishing the names, photographs, and statements of the defeated presidential candidates Mousavi and Mehdi Karoubi, as well as former President Mahmoud Khatami, because of probable negative influence. And I'm going to pause there, folks. <coughs> Excuse me. Don't we see this going on time and time again? They use censorship as a means of propaganda as well. They, they want to keep information that's contrary to what they want out there from hitting the airwaves and, you know, having people affected in the opposite direction of what they intended. Uh, so, you know, with that being said, we could see how these things have, have gone on. Uh, let's continue reading here, and we're going to wrap it up here real soon because I think... I, we, we kind of get the idea, don't we? Uh, let's continue reading, though. The study of contemporary propaganda in both oppressed and free societies is a complex endeavor. We acknowledge that one's perception of a form of communication determines what is self-evident and what is controversial. One person's propaganda may be another person's education. In our def definition, the elements of deliberate intent and manipulation, along with a systematic plan to achieve a purpose that is advantageous to the propagandist, however, distinguish propaganda from a free and open exchange of ideas. And I'm going to end it right there, folks. Do you hear that? Propaganda, it's not the exchange free and open idea ideas. Uh they say here that propaganda is different from a free and open exchange of ideas. Okay, 
Propaganda is one-sided, it's disingenuous, and it's uh, practiced only to benefit the propagandist. So when you're being propagandized, even though they may make it sound beneficial to you or, or uh, you know, like they're doing this stuff for good reasons, like, uh, you know, in the current vaccine campaign, doubt not that this does not have your best interests in mind. Okay, even though that's the, uh, the idea they will try to relate to you. Okay, uh, so, you know, right now they're, they're really pushing this vaccine agenda. And they, they've propagandized us to death with it. All right, it's, it's all over media everywhere. Vaccine, 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 COVID, COVID, COVID. They've tried to make this look like the one and only solution to a problem that they uh, have engineered into something that looks so very scary and fearful for people when it's actually blown way out of proportion. When you actually look at the statistics and the evidence, it doesn't add up. It's all propaganda. They're, they're pushing, for, first and foremost, they're, they're using this fear narrative to promote that there's this pandemic that's just killing massive numbers of people, and it's awful, and the only solution is to get vaccinated two, three, four, five, how many ever times that they decide by the time it's all over. And uh, although, despite the fact that these vaccines, if you look at the data, are showing very negative side effects and are ineffectual, they still push this as their only solution to the problem. This is propaganda, folks. There's no science behind what's being presented in this narrative. Uh, and we gave the, the definitions here of propaganda in this book, and I would recommend, the, you know, pick up this book if you have the, the means and the opportunity. Uh, it, it's worth reading through, just so you can understand the social engineering tools that are being used against you and how the very definition of what they're doing, what mass media is doing, it, it does not have the public's best interest in mind. See, journalism is not what it once was. There's no such thing anymore. It's all propaganda 24-7 being shoveled into your brain from all of these different sources, television, uh, social media, all over the place. You can't even walk out in public without being propagandized in some way. Giant billboards, get your vaccine down at this clinic, blah, 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 blah. Uh, get your free flu shot down here at CVS. I've never seen so much vaccine propaganda in my life, folks. And I'm not just talking about the COVID uh, vaccine that they're pushing. It's all of them. Uh, you, you turn on the TV, oh, get your shingles shot, get your flu shot. Uh, they have these advertisements all over the place. It's ridiculous. So you have to ask yourself just a couple of questions in regards to this. First of all, we know that the media is using propaganda against us. So we have to ask, who are the propagandists that are writing this propaganda and putting it out there for us? Who are they? Are they the big pharmaceutical companies and the CDC that's in bed with the big pharmaceutical companies and the FDA that's in bed with the big pharmaceutical companies? I think all you got to do is follow the dollar signs, folks, and you'll know who it is that's putting this out. So it's benefiting them and not us, okay? They don't give two craps about your health. They never did. They never will. It's not about that. It's about control. And, you know, to a lesser degree, it's about making tons and tons of cash uh, to a lot of these people. 
okay? So uh, that's why it's always important to follow the money trail because money speaks volumes to a lot of people, especially people in these positions of power because that's primarily what a lot of them care about on the lowermost levels, okay? Now, the social engineers of the world, they have something different in mind, and they are willfully and knowingly manipulating people into acting in a way that's not in their best interests, all right? But it is in their interest, the social engineer's interest, but not the, the public at large's best interest. And they like to steer these people in that way. And then they, you know, they say, well, we put the information out there. Uh, we told you what we were doing and you didn't object to it. You went along with it. It's out there in the public domain. All you got to do is look for it. But see, that's the problem. They've, they've conditioned us to being a, a complacent society. And that needs to stop. Everybody needs to start uh, digging, digging deeper into things and not just believing what narrative is told to you on the face of it and accepting it as truth because 99 times out of 100, it's not truth. And you need to do a little critical thinking for yourself. But, uh, you know, that that's basically the message here today, folks. If you take nothing else away from this, what I would like for you to take away is remember, media is not your friend entertainment's not your friend. These are all put out there as pieces of propaganda to manipulate your cognitive functions and manipulate your behaviors and make you believe something that's not true, okay? Or to act upon something that's not true in a certain way that benefits the propagandist and not you. So if you take nothing else away from that, realize that's what this is. It's the very definition of mind control, okay? So uh, when you see a news piece out there, understand what you're looking at. It's not a, an unbiased uh, description of things that are going on in the world. It's a carefully packaged web of lies put together to manipulate your behavior. That's what it is. So when you're watching something on the television or it comes across on social media, know that uh, somebody has thought very carefully about what it is that's being put out there a message to you to affect the way you behave. And that's what it's all about. But anyway, thanks for listening, folks, and have a good night. Come with me.
It's what you can make